I'm Pastor Gerald Curtis, and you're listening to my 67th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that the purpose of biblical love is to facilitate salvation, that men should not perish, but have everlasting life. Biblical love is not an emotion, but a way of acting that will bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Manson, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this uh, 13th day of the month of March of 2011. It's Time Change Sunday, and uh, I hope that everybody was able to uh, shut their clocks forward. <laughs> Thankfully, um, uh, my most of the things that I use to wake up are set from somewhere else, so I was blessed to be able to get up when I was supposed to because of that. And uh, then I had to walk through the house and set all the manual clocks. And, uh, so I'm here today. What we're looking forward to today, uh, our final four, I mean, the uh, NCAA tournament pings coming out this afternoon, championships this afternoon, and uh, all kinds of good stuff. The first day of spring is next week, and uh, we have pretty much uh, made our way through the winter. And so today we're going to carry on in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, the 67th part of that. And our text for this morning is in a little bit different place than we have been. It is in the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians and verses 4 and 5, which read as follows. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. 
Now, in our last discussion period, we had a question concerning the practical application of the concept of love. And the question was so interesting that I decided to take a small detour from our historical survey of gender in the Bible to clarify the biblical concept of love. Now, biblical love is not the same as the emotional or romantic attraction that is colloquially called love by people in our society. Biblical love is actually not that which we would categorize an, as an emotion at all. The most thorough definition of love is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, which read as follows. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, patience, the first attribute of love, is not an emotion, but a method of acting, as are the rest of the attributes of love. And since none of the attributes of love are emotions, it is possible to show love to someone for whom you feel no emotion whatsoever, or even someone for whom you feel a negative emotion. Love requires us to perform loving actions because of God's command to do so. Now, biblical love has one objective. John 3.16 explains the love of God to us as it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the purpose of biblical love is to facilitate the salvation of mankind, that men shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Genesis, God showed his love for the man and the woman when he did not immediately carry out the sentence of death that they earned by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God killed an animal instead, covered the naked sinfulness of the man and woman with the skin of the animal, and gave the man and the woman a chance to demonstrate their faith and thus redeem themselves. And Jesus Christ's mission to planet Earth was to give us a visible and permanent demonstration of God's love for us by facilitating our salvation. And in John 3:17, God redundantly clarifies that principle as he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And it is important that we understand the purpose of biblical love and not confuse biblical love with human emotion. Jesus Christ did not go to the cross 
because he felt particularly emotional toward his disciples. Luke 22 describes Peter's interaction with Jesus during his arrest. Verses 54 through 60 tell us, having arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at Peter and said, This man was also with Jesus. But Peter denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw Peter and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, Another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow Peter was also with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, Peter was the boldest of the disciples. He was allegedly the one that pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant when the mob came to arrest Jesus. But just a little while later, Peter was denying that he knew or ever was with Jesus, and Jesus saw it. Luke 21 and 6, 22 and 61 tells us, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. But the Lord's look was not one of love and devotion. The Lord's disappointment was palpable. How do I know? Because Luke twenty two sixty one continues, Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, what was the result of this interaction between Peter and Jesus, in which Jesus said nothing, but only gave Peter a look? Luke 22 and 62 records, So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas, another of Jesus' disciples, was the one that betrayed Jesus. Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, denied Jesus, as we have just read, and the rest of the disciples, with the exception of John, forsook Jesus and ran away in Jesus' hour of trial. We could certainly describe the disciples as a motley crew, and if Jesus' affection for them was the determinative factor, determinative factor in Jesus's decision to give his life on Calvary's cross, I'm sure that Jesus would have at least rethought his decision. If we recognize the number of people that currently reject the sacrifice of the Savior and will not come to the Lord Jesus Christ despite his benevolence to us, we soon find ourselves asking, whether we could give any type of benevolence to people that acted toward us the way that people throughout the centuries have acted toward Jesus. But Jesus did not hesitate in fulfilling his mission, our sinfulness and ingratitude notwithstanding. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 tells us, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. 
but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not go to Calvary and does not offer us salvation because of something as fleeting as an emotion. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame in order to fulfill the plan of God and to show us the love of God. And 1 John 4.11 tells us, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, biblical love is not an emotion or feeling, but biblical love is the way of acting that will bring men, women, boys and girls to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Biblical love does not require a person to feel an emotional attachment to the one to whom they are showing love. Biblical love only requires a person to act in such a way that the person to whom they are showing love can see the love of Christ in them. Biblical love in acting is acting in such a way that draws men to Jesus Christ the Savior. And it is the gift of God that when we show biblical love to someone and act to facilitate their entry into God's kingdom, we generally develop a positive emotional feeling for them. But it is of the utmost importance that we understand the sequence. The actions come first, and then the positive feelings may follow. Thus, the positive feelings are not a prerequisite for love, and we do not have to feel positively about someone to love them. For example, in our text for today, the Apostle Paul is acting as the spiritual advisor for the church that assembles at Corinth. The Corinthian church has many problems, but in the fifth chapter of Paul's first letter, Paul addresses the problem of moral turpitude in the church. First Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 records, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now back when I was a regular attendee of the National Baptist Convention, Dr. C.A.W. Clark the pastor of the Good Street Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, was the morning seminar speaker for the minister's division. Dr. Clark was in his 80s, but he could still preach. But at the convention one year, Dr. Clark could barely walk and was assisted to the podium by two other preachers who virtually carried him as he climbed the stairs and then stood behind him to catch him if he collapsed while preaching. I figured that Dr. Clark would be giving up his position soon. But at the convention the next year, I was surprised to see Dr. Clark spryly climb the stairs unassisted and then preach with all the animation and fervor with which he had preached over the years that I had attended the convention. And in the afternoon session, after a song and a prayer, the moderator asked the wife of the afternoon seminar speaker, Dr. A. Lewis Patterson, to stand and be recognized. After she received a round of applause, 
The moderator started introducing the wives of all the leaders sitting on the stage, who each in turn received a round of applause. Then the moderator said, and now I would like the newest wife in our brotherhood, Mrs. C.A.W. Clark to stay. Now, as Dr. Clark's wife died in her mid-80s some years before, heads around the room turned to see whom Dr. Clark married. A mature but much younger woman, who looked to be in her 50s, stood to the applause and the murmurs of the crowd. Good old Dr. Clark married a woman that looked to be at least 20 and likely 30 years his junior, and you can be sure that at least for that day, she was the talk of the convention. But just consider a man that marries a woman 20 or 30 years his junior. His wife is young enough to be his daughter, and his son is old enough to be his wife's contemporary. And when this situation arose with one particular May-December romance in Corinth, the man's son decided to help his father carry out certain marital functions that it was possible that his father could not perform with the frequency required to fulfill the requirements of his younger wife. And while in some pagan circles, this type of arrangement might be winked at, the apostle Paul was not the winking type. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, and you are puffed up and rather have not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church that such immorality cannot be condoned and those perpetuating it should be shunned. Paul says in our text for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is willing to have this man's flesh destroyed in order that his spirit might be saved. As was our thesis for today, the purpose of biblical love is to facilitate the salvation of mankind that man, men shall not perish, but have an eternal life. Paul is less concerned about our earthly life than about our eternal salvation. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. And physical death is an inevitability that we cannot escape. The psalmist tells us in Psalm chapter 90, verse 10, the days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. And I was recently reminded about a comment I once made in reference to Psalm 90 and 10. I asked someone if we could eradicate cigarette smoking from the face of the earth, how many lives would that action save? When they answered a lot, I told him no, none. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us, 
And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So if you don't die from cigarette smoking, you are going to die from something else. Death is an inevitability from which there is no escape. But the declared purpose of this life is to prepare us for the next life and so fulfill the mandate of Jesus Christ given in John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life earthly life and earthly relationships are temporary and Paul is willing that the man be denied earthly temporary pleasure in order to obtain everlasting life. Paul is willing that the man be denied the comfort of the Christian fellowship and be excommunicated in order to bring him to the point of sorrow that Peter reached. Peter, after sinning and denying the Savior, went out and wept bitterly. And then God granted Peter repentance, and Peter returned to the fellowship a chastened and more repentant man, more to more devoted to Jesus than he was before his sin. And we in the church have the responsibility to love one another, meaning to keep one another on the path to heaven. Paul's prescription to Corinth is simply a recitation of that which Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And this is love. We treat our brothers and sisters this way because God is not going to have unrepentant sinners in heaven. Our faith in God is not simply a faith in the existence of God, but rather a faith in the correctness of the prescriptions of God. Our faith in God is a testament to our desire to live in God's kingdom with God as our king, according to God's rules. And let me say that again in case you missed it. Our faith in God is a testament to our desire to live in God's kingdom with God as our king, according to God's rules. To be a believer in God means that we have come to the decision is that God is more knowledgeable than are we. To be a believer in God means that we have come to the decision that God is more insightful than are we. To be a believer in God means that we have come to the decision that we ought to obey God rather than our own desires. And after Jesus restored Peter to the fellowship, Jesus told him in John 21, 18 and 19, 
most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This Jesus spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken, this Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And ultimately, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to have to go to some places which we do not wish to go, just as Jesus went to the cross. Love is not simply doing that which we desire. Love is, in fact, doing that which God requires. So Paul tells the Corinthian church that they're not going to be able to wink at the sin of their immoral members. God tells the church that to do so will pollute the entire church. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now leaven is yeast, which when put in a mixture of flour and water, takes the starch in the flour and converts it into sugar, carbon dioxide, and ethyl alcohol. The large molecules in starches don't have much flavor, but when they break down into sugars, they, they develop marvelous flavors. The carbon dioxide produced by the yeast permeates the dough, giving it a lighter, more edible texture. And as the amount of ethyl alcohol produced increases, it inhibits the action of the yeast to create sugar and carbon dioxide so that the bread eventually stops fermenting. But the yeast is a living organism that reproduces as it breaks down the starches in the dough, which is why just a little yeast can break down a large lump of dough. And yeast is an analogy for sin. Unrestrained sin in the church breaks down the fabric of the church just as yeast breaks down the fabric of dough. And just as yeast changes dough into bread, sin changes the church into an organization that does not do that which God requires, but rather that which man desires. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 and 12, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Once the yeast of sin enters the church, the objective of the church changes. No longer is the church pointed toward bringing men into God's kingdom, but rather the church is pointed toward the fulfillment of men's desires on the earth. The objective of the sinful church is not heaven, but rather happiness. The sinful church is not going to follow Jesus's instruction to go where it does not wish to go, as Jesus followed God's instruction to go to the cross, but the sinful church is going to lead men into rejecting God's instruction to do in order that they may do that which they wish to do. And when the sinful church is challenged to do that which God tells it to do, the love of God in the church will grow cold. And the Corinthian church is a sinful church 
because it condones the sin of the man that has his father's wife. Now, every church has members that commit sin, but every, any church that condones sin is soon leavened with sin. So Paul tells this sinful Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of, leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And how are the Corinthians to produce this bread? Paul specifies in 1 Corinthians 9 through 13, I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from you the evil person. So think of sinfulness as yeast. Once we embrace the yeast, the yeast ferments and our objective changes. And if I convince you to embrace my sin in a few days, you will be back to get me to embrace your sin. And then a few more days, our church will become a hotbed of sin. So if we love one another and our objective is to help one another get into God's kingdom, we cannot condone sin. Jesus tells us that the most loving thing that we can do to a sinner in the church is to first go to him or her alone and tell them their fault in hopes that they will repent and then take one or two with us to tell them their fault to try to get them to repent and then bring their fault to the attention of the church to try to get them to repent. And then if all attempts fail, we are to excommunicate them from the fellowship. And John tells us in 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word confess is used in this passage of scripture rather than repent. Because if a person is repentant, they will confess their sins, sins, since no one can repent of a sin which they have not confessed. How can you repent of something if you do not acknowledge that you did it? So if someone does something terrible, simply sweeping their faults under the rug and pretending that they did not sin is not Christian love. We have to confront sin not condone sin, nor comfort the sinner, 
until the sinner repents, confesses his sin, and accepts judgment. Happily, in this biblical case, once the Corinthian church acted, the man that had his father's wife did confess his sin and repent. Paul then told the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan would first have the church torn apart by sin. And if the church reacts properly to the sin, Satan would then seek to tear the church apart by encouraging self-righteousness in the members of the church, which leads to a lack of forgiveness. And the purpose of discipline is restoration, not revenge. Ultimately, our goal is to show love to one another, which will put us all on the track together to the kingdom of God. Restoration is as much a part of love as is discipline. And Paul tells that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8 through 12. For even though I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Therefore, Although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul wrote the harsh words of 1 Corinthians 5 out of his love and care for the church. Out of his love and care for Peter, in Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. But the purpose of discipline is restoration, not revenge. And after Peter's many failures, Jesus talked to Peter 
in John 21, 15 through 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to Peter again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to Peter, tend my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. <clears throat> and Jesus talked thusly to Peter because the purpose of Christian love is not emotional satisfaction. The purpose of Christian love is not short-term happiness. The purpose of Christian love is not to obtain a feeling at all. The purpose of Christian love is the restoration of our ability to function as a member in the kingdom of God. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the purpose of this life is to prepare for the next life, our eternal life. The purpose of this life is to learn the discipline of Christian love that leads us away from our sins to our salvation. And Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And Jesus tells us at the judgment, we will each be judged differently based upon the ability that God has given us and the time that he has given us to exercise that ability. And it is true that all the thief on the cross had to do to be saved was to confess with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord because the thief was saved as he was dying on the cross next to Jesus. But for those of us that have the opportunity to live past the day that we are saved, we have an opportunity and a responsibility that the thief on the cross did not have, that being to discipline ourselves to love one another by bearing the difficult burden of disciplining one another, which will ultimately lead us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we have this responsibility 
because those of us that Jesus gives ability and time are preparing for the reward of further responsibility in our eternal life. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 22, 28 through 30, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And as the disciples have the opportunity to obtain a kingdom, so also have we. So let us learn the discipline and the love of God that brings men into the kingdom that we may receive our heavenly reward. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20 through 24 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever des desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for your explanation and for your understanding of the love that you have for us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that our life on planet Earth is finite. We have a certain number of years to be here, after which we have to go to an eternal home. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom and the insight to use this time that we have here to prepare ourselves to rule in that everlasting home, to uh, carry out the responsibilities that you have given us here so that we will be prepared for further responsibility in our eternal life. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.